Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest recently scored Netflix's Princess Switch, Switched Again, starring Vanessa Hudgens and directed by Mike Roll. Netflix's Holiday in the Wild, starring Kristen Davis and Rob Lowe, directed by Ernie Barbarash, and the prestigious BBC program Natural World, narrated by Sir David Attenborough. He has scored more than 50 films and TV shows, and I'm very excited to have him on the show. And the composer is Alan Lazar. Oh, thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Matthew. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk. So, Alan, out of curiosity, uh, how did you get into you know film music or, or music in general? Well, uh, it's been a little bit of a winding path, I think, as it is for uh, many in the entertainment industry. It's not a very uh, predictable career. Um, I studied classical piano as a kid, but I never kind of really intended it to be a career. When I went to college, uh, which I did in South Africa, I was studying computer science and uh, political studies, expecting to uh, you know, have a more conventional path. And uh, on weekends, I started playing in this band called Mango Groove, which uh, was a very big band in South Africa, but kind of unexpected. We, we, we used to do, just do like weekend gigs and, you know, making a bit of extra money for college. And uh, we then got a record deal and uh, actually went like 10 times platinum in South Africa, um, wow. which uh, that's a lot less albums than 10 times platinum in America. But uh, it was still, you know, a very cool thing to happen. We were one of the first like multiracial bands in South Africa, so I think you know for the whole time in South Africa, it really struck a chord, and uh, that kind of got me onto this uh, creative path, I guess I would describe it as. And I had always loved movies, and uh, I thought, well, let me go, let me try and get into film school and see if I can learn how to make movies. And uh, I won a scholarship to USC Film School here in LA. And uh, then discovered that filmmaking is pretty stressful. Directing and, and all of that is like pretty stressful. And I started writing music for some of my friends' films, uh, their little short films they were making at film school, and discovered I really love doing that. And uh, so although I've done a couple of other things, um, most of my career has been writing music for film and TV now. And uh, yeah, that's in short how I got onto the path. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, USC alum on the show, and uh, you mm-hmm. know it's interesting to hear people talk about how the program has helped uh, help them. I'm curious, did you feel like there was a lot of like uh, intersection between like the film students and like the the film music students or music people just in general? Um, not that much of a connection. I mean, the the film school and the music school used to be kind of right next door to each other, so you know we would often see them and stuff. There was no structured interaction between uh, the two different programs. But, you know, that said, they I guess they kind of call it the USC Mafia. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if Mafia is like, um, 
it's probably too strong a word to describe it because a lot of people that go to film school and music school, you know, they they find afterwards that it's just too difficult to get a career going and they land up doing other things. But for those of us that have managed to remain uh, kind of in the industry, you know, knowing other folks from USC has definitely kind of helped along the way, I guess. Uh, a lot of the directors I still worked uh, for today are, are folks, I, you know, I met back in the day at USC, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Would you say you were like very social in college and just like if, if there was like less infrastructure there in terms of like meeting filmmakers or is that like a priority, something you kind of, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> searched out the filmmakers? No, that's actually a very good question. Um, in a way, I'd, I wish I'd been like more social when I was at college because <laughs> one realizes later on how important all of the networking is and stuff. Um, so, I, yeah, I probably would have been even more social. I was very focused just on making my movies and, you know, obviously developed some very good friendships. And I think the thing is, uh, as I'm sure you know, like when you meet friends at college or film school, music school, they become these very deep friendships because you've met in this learning, creative environment. It's not like the real world in a lot of ways. So you develop these very trusting and meaningful relationships with people and they endure for a, a very long time, you know? Yeah, very much so. When everyone's like exploring and learning at the same time, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I kind of wish that too. I went to NYU and cool. Now, having graduated, I'm like, hmm, I should have spent more time at the Tisch lobby, <laughs> <laughs> hanging out with the film students. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, like when you graduated, did you have like some plan in terms of like what you wanted to do? Like, I, I mean, I guess career wise, probably like long term goals, but mm -hmm. uh, like, what what was the environment like? Like day after graduation. <laughs> um. It was pretty tough. I think, you know, anyone graduating, particularly from like film school, music school, any of the creative arts schools, you know, you kind of face it like an abyss after you graduate because mm. it's not like, I don't know, medical school or uh, law school where you kind of get, you know, a lot of job interviews and stuff. You really have to be very entrepreneurial and kind of make your own way, you know. So uh, I remember definitely kind of feeling that after school, wow, this is going to be tough. But I was very sure that I wanted to, you know, be a, a film and TV composer at that point. I remember making a little list of all the things I could do after school, and that was like top of the list, and it was what I really wanted to do. And uh, so I guess, uh, you know, I just focused on trying to score anything I could, just taking any opportunity that uh, that kind of came my way. And uh, gradually over time, that kind of built into a career, but it, it definitely took a little bit of time, you know? And uh, I, I think to to really make it in, in film and TV scoring, in fact, to, you know, anything in the internet, entertainment industry, I think you've really just got to love it and you've got to be um, so passionate about it. It's like you, you've got to be in a position where you just couldn't imagine doing anything else because it's a tough career and you really got to be able to kind of stick with it. And uh, when you've got that passion, it kind of makes it easier to, to get through some of the early ups and downs, you know? Right, for sure. And I feel like it's interesting that like early on, sometimes you can get dissuaded just because it, I mean, it's really difficult to make a movie in general, like let alone yeah. any of the big ones or, or small ones too. It's just, mm -hmm. uh, it's a seemingly impossible thing for, for anyone in a funny way. No, it's, it's like a miracle when it happens because, you know, I, I see this with so many of my director friends, you know, they take four or five years to get a movie off the ground off and it's just such an impossible thing to make happen. It's totally like a miracle when it happens every time, you know? So. Yeah, I mean, I where I was staying in LA, um, uh, the person I was staying with, she had a meeting with um, Ang Lee, and he was just in the wow. kitchen one morning when I was leaving, and yeah, he was saying like he was having trouble financing one of his movies. I was thinking like, wow, wow. That's, that's Ang Lee, and even he has 
the same issues that my friends just graduated college do. Wow, that's wild to hear, actually. He's such a magnificent filmmaker. I can't believe he would struggle to get anything made. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We're talking about this thing on his IMDb that's literally been like, like you've seen those things on someone's IMDb where it's in production and mm-hmm. it's been there for like four years. Yeah. And yep. It's, <laughs> many of those. Yeah. Many of them. I've, yeah, we've all had that. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> but out of curiosity, like, were there any like moments where you, uh, felt like dissuaded by music like especially around that time or did you still just keep the love for it and kept working on your way yeah i gotta say i've i've never seriously thought about you know uh leaving the industry um i just love it too much you know that moment when you've scored something and you get to watch it with an audience so you you know get to watch it on on netflix when you know millions of other people are watching it's it's just such a wonderful wonderful feeling like i live for that and uh I just, I've never imagined, you know, really doing anything else. Um, and I think over time as well, like your career builds into something and over time it becomes uh, more stable and, you know, I don't worry too much about it anymore. In the early years, it was uh, real tough, but I know that something's always going to come along. I will say even today though, and a lot of my friends in the industry say this, uh, it's not like um, it's ever predictable. You can really, really want a certain project and that may not work out, but then something else cool works out. So one's got to be really like unattached to results. Like I think you just do your best. You always put your best work out there and then it somehow works out over time, I think, you know? Yeah, very much so. And yeah, I totally agree about like how, you know, I I guess like if you're playing in a band, maybe you can get burned out if you're like stuck in a style. But with what we do, it's just, uh, you know, blending genres or or Mm -hmm. trying out different instruments for each project. And yeah, it always keeps it somewhat fresh. Yeah, for sure. Especially as like a film and TV composer, you're writing to picture. So whatever the picture brings you each time is always so different and so exciting and challenging. And you've got to put yourself into that world and uh, figure out, you know, what, what the score is going to be. It's, it's just such an endlessly challenging and exciting process, and it's never the same. So it, it kind of never gets boring. So For sure. I also wanted to ask you about, um, seeing as you've done a lot of film and TV, I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I'd be curious to to you know discuss like what do you think are the differences in terms of composing for the two different mediums? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I think you know again it varies so much between every single different film and and TV show. But uh, in my own experience, um, you know, for instance, in TV, I've done a lot of stuff for Real Housewives over the years. And like a lot of uh, those sort of shows, the music often comes first. So you know, I'll. I'll get a commission at the beginning of each season saying, you know, we need a bunch of tension cues, some sad cues, some glamour cues, some, you know, and I'm writing for the show with the show in mind, but I'm not writing directly to picture. Um, as opposed to film, you're writing directly to picture, and I think that changes entirely the way that you write those cues. The The, the end result might sound similar in a way, like, you know, a lot of production music stuff that I've done over the years sounds like score, but the actual process of composition is so different when you're writing to picture, when you kind of lapping up the emotions and the colors and the tempo of the picture, as opposed to creating something with a a, a blank screen. So that's one difference. And I think, um, you know, generally, and again, it's always different, but I think in television, the, the power on the show generally lies with the producers and the showrunners 
whereas in film, it's a very director-driven medium. So you're always going to be dealing, whatever you do, with directors and producers and editors in the studio or network. But in film, it tends to be much more focused on the on the director. And that, that also impacts the way that you do everything. I always try and listen for input from everybody because I think the people who really care about it always have something good to say at the end of the day. But I tend to listen a little more closely to the director on film uh, because they've really seen that project through from from the very first frame, and I have a much more direct relationship with them. Often on TV shows, you don't even deal with the directors. You know, they're hired hands that kind of come in for for a, an episode or two. So right, yeah, that was a funny thing for me when I got hired to do my first TV show, and I didn't had no idea what a showrunner was, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wasn't sure who my boss was. <laughs> right, and yeah, it was kind of a funny thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Real Housewives too. I mean. Uh, I've done some like music for some libraries and whatnot, and I feel like Real Housewives is always like the reference for for any of those kinds of jobs. So, <laughs> was it was fifteen seasons, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy looking back, and you know, kind of love it or hate it. Uh, and many people love it, and many people hate it. Um, you know, it's it's been a wonderful thing for me simply because of the reach of the show. I mean, I get emails from the strangest places. I got an email from Iceland the other day, like a huge. You know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fan asking me about the queue in a particular um, episode, and uh, so it's you know it's it's been wonderful uh, in 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 that regard for sure. Yeah, and and working on shows where where it's kind of that format of like you know getting like a list of like we need these types of like tension cues or these happy cues or whatever is that kind of what led you to start your own uh, production music catalog? Yeah, you know, I kind of noticed over the years that uh, production music catalogs were um, starting to improve in quality a lot. And they were also starting to, um, like a lot more shows were starting to use them. Like, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, libraries were kind of known as very low quality and they were only used in like corporate videos and stuff like that. And then in the 2000s, there was such an explosion of content you know, also because of the internet and because there's just a proliferation of TV networks around the world who often need a lot of music very quickly. Libraries just started getting better and a lot of, you know, top name composers started getting involved in them and and writing some tracks for them. So I kind of observed this and then with my particular production music catalog, a longtime client kind of came to me wanting to to start a, a something in music. And for me, it kind of made sense to do a production music catalog. And that's how I kind of, you know, got into that. And it's it's been a kind of cool thing because it fills in a lot of the uh, the gaps. I feel like I'm always working all the time now. So when I'm not scoring a movie, I'm kind of doing some additional tracks for my catalog. Uh, it's 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 really been an interesting thing. And the other cool thing about production music is that I've uh, I've got to meet a lot of composers. Like we've we've used I think more than 160 composers at this point, and it's kind of fascinating interacting with each of them because they're all different. They all have their own unique aesthetic. Uh, so I feel like I learn from everybody. So, right. I mean, I was going to say that with um, you know all the range. I mean, Real Housewives, but just again, all the the shows and projects you've worked on. It's uh, it's amazing the uh, caliber of range and how uh, you sometimes just have to jump genres so much. So it makes sense having like yeah. all 160 composers who I'm sure you've taught a bunch to, of you know music lessons too, and and vice versa. Yeah, it's it's definitely yeah been interesting and like, look, it's the cool thing about you know scoring is uh, you get to do a lot of stuff in a lot of genres and you got to be uh, <laughs> real flexible and that makes it interesting. Uh, I just think it's such an exciting thing to be in scoring. I just love it. 
Right. Well, with that in mind, what would be like the dream kind of score that you'd want to work on, whether it's like for a specific genre of film or specific instrumentation that you'd want to work with, if you could pick the dream score to do? Well, um, the two things I really enjoy doing are romantic comedies and crime dramas, which uh, <laughs> it kind of might sound strange that I'd lump them together, but those are genuinely the things that for some reason I just respond to the best. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to do a bunch of those. In terms of, uh, you know, my dream project, uh, this last Netflix one I did, I've got to say, kind of came close because uh, we had um, a good uh, budget for orchestra, at least. Uh, it wasn't the hugest orchestra budget, but we were able to get orchestra. And, you know, with a lot of uh, a lot of movies or TV shows you get involved in, it's just a fight to get orchestra involved. And I'm not an anti-technology guy. I love my computer. I can spend endless hours playing on Pro Tools and you know, I, I keep up to date with all the latest instruments and um, you can get great sounds out of electronica, but there's still something terrific about a live orchestra, which unfortunately, you know, many producers and directors overlook. And being able to get a decent sized orchestra and a good orchestra and one that you have for at least a couple of days so that you're not rushing like crazy. Uh, to have that and to be able to combine it with all of your electronica, um, I think really creates the best sort of score. And it's it's just really, it's not, it's not so much because samples don't, don't sound good today. Samples sound great today. I mean, some of the Spitfire uh, audio stuff is really terrific, but they don't have that same interpretation that an orchestra has when they play your melodies. And it's the same way that, uh, you know, actors bring uh, writing on a page to life. Uh, an orchestra brings melodies to life in a way that samples just cannot. And it's, it's, so it's always something I'm going to be pushing and fighting for to, uh, to get to use orchestra as much as possible. But combined with electronica, I'm not an orchestral purist either. I think, you know, I'm always struck when I'm, I'm working on scores that even adding just a few live instruments to something which has been created with electronica really brings it to life in a unique way. And then to kind of start messing with your live recording using the electronica makes it even cooler. So it's this tussle between live instruments and electronica and letting them feed off each other. Uh, I think the best scores kind of come from that process, you know? Yeah. And it's funny that, I mean... I guess because samples have gotten so used by now, like, I mean, I, you can't, I can't think of a Hans Zimmer score where it's uh, an orchestra without like a synth in the low bass and mm -hmm. just creating that extra sense of size, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, it's funny that like when you do blend the two in really unique ways that you just come up with something that is just greater than equal part. For sure. Really quick though. So did you record uh, orchestra uh, during the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, we did actually. Uh, it was a bit of a, a moving target. Um, I kind of, you know, throughout my process, I was basically preparing to kind of figure out a way on how I could record at least some orchestral instruments separately. Um, so I was planning on, you know, recording separate woodwinds and then maybe trying to get together a little string quartet. Um, but then, you know, thanks to the amazing music team at Netflix, they had been doing a lot of research on this. And they came up with a couple of European orchestras who had managed to kind of uh, set up recording situations with COVID-19 protocols. So kind of, you know, they were in big studios where the string players were sitting kind of separated or wearing masks. 
They had like woodwind players and brass players behind plexi plexiglass. And uh, they were also in places where the numbers were quite low at that time. Right. Um, and um, so we had a pretty safe situation. And uh, given that, I was like, yeah, please, let's do the live orchestra. So we recorded a yeah, 50-piece uh, orchestra in uh, Budapest um, who were terrific. Uh, I was so happy with the results. And uh, I was sitting in my studio <laughs> right here in L.A., and uh, the other cool thing about it, about not being in person for the orchestra session, which I normally like to do, um, there were some advantages to recording completely remotely. Um, you know, we were connected by some special software. I could see the orchestra. I was Skype chatting directly with the uh, orchestra conductor. But the other thing is, uh, like, we had like 15 of the producers and uh, the team from Netflix, obviously the director, the writer, a bunch of folks like you know, zoomed in onto the session. So uh, it became a cool communal thing for a couple of days. And uh, it was great because all these folks heard the advantages that a live orchestra brings. <laughs> so uh, I, I, part of me wants to keep on doing it this way now because it really encourages everyone to to participate in, you know, if they can uh, <laughs> zoom into the session, why not, you know? Yeah, and the Budapest players are so good too. Um for yeah <laughs> oh they were just fantastic <laughs> it's gonna be interesting to see that uh if more people you know do these remote sessions um i mean i know that they were doing a lot before the pandemic too but mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i must say i was very impressed with the the orchestra you know i've, I've recorded a bunch of orchestras in eastern europe over the years uh, and often it is because of that uh, cost differential and uh you know often you encounter like the string players are really really good uh, woodwinds are generally good. When you start getting into specialty instruments, sometimes you encounter issues. Percussion sometimes can be an issue, and brass in particular can be an issue. But I must say the Budapest really did very well all round. I mean, I really had a good experience with them. Uh, you know, I supplemented a little with brass here in LA, but it was more as a backup. I mean, what I good what I got from the players there was was really excellent. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the London players, the LA players are the best in the world when it comes to to film music. But at the same time, you can get a decent recording in Budapest. Um, and it obviously makes it more accessible to folks, uh, you know, if they can do it in a, in a cost-effective way that they don't have to be just a big studio uh, project in order to get uh, a decent orchestral session done, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess with that, uh, we'll move on to the, the last segment for this uh, podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> you ready? Sounds great. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Well, the first one I got here on my list is DAW. Well, um, I started on Cubase uh, back in the 1990s when I was in South Africa. It was the first thing I ever used, got really, really into it. Um, this was like before, you know, even had audio and stuff, you know, it was just like a <laughs> MIDI thing at that point. And uh, when I came to the US, a friend of mine kind of got me into Pro Tools uh, for, for digital audio. And for a long time, I used kind of a combo of Cubase and Pro Tools together, like, you know, moving stuff back and forth between them. And then I've got to say, I think around 2006 or so, I started using this Pro Tools. Um, you know, it's, it's MIDI implementation may not be the best in the world, but I can definitely do everything that I need and I love being in just one system for everything. And um, the fact that most of the uh, you know audio mixing stages are on Pro Tools, it means that my final sessions, it's really easy just to output everything in the format that they need. I never have issues uh, with my stuff going to the stage. Uh, so 
Yeah, I'm I'm a big Pro Tools person, which I know makes me pretty unusual among composers. I know there's a lot of uh, Logic users and stuff around. Um, but I have this to say about DAWs as well, that I think at the end of the day, it's what you do with your system that is the most important thing. And you can't get like too hung up on a particular door. Um, it's They all do pretty much the same thing at the end of the day. Uh, and it's how well you know it, what you feel comfortable with, and the amazing creativity you can put into it is the important thing. One more thing, since you said I could say as much as I wanted. Um, I have never used Ableton Live, but I have noticed that a couple of the composers for our production music catalog use Ableton, and they've sent me stuff from there. And there's something about the sound of their tracks that I really like. I don't know what it is. It's like a crunchiness or there's just something in the sound of Ableton, which I, I, I've been wanting to for a long time. Whenever I have some downtime, I'm going to just use Ableton for a bit because I like the sound of it. So, Yeah, Ableton is so much fun. I'm kind of a terrible uh, person that I use uh, too many DAWs. I, I'm like jumping between Cubase, Logic, Pro Tools, Ableton. Recently, Reaper too a little bit. It's like, ah, interesting. It's no, but you know what? If it's getting the job done for you, and you feel like you're getting something from all of those doors, then go for it. There's like no rules yeah. for this stuff. So for sure. And the bigger thing is like when I'm working with other composers, I like to use whatever they're using too, so mm -hmm. I can just send them a sesh if if need be, or yeah, or just like helps you get in their mind a little more. <laughs> for sure. No, that's actually a very good point. I mean, like you know, like remote control, Hans Zimmer, obviously, you know, uh, a lot of composers kind of get in there at remote control, and you need to know Cubase if you're going to be uh, oh, be yeah. doing stuff there, you know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I haven't heard of too many people going from Cubase to Pro Tools. So I think that you might be the first. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, and actually, that's the thing as well. Like, it doesn't seem like there are many American composers on Cubase. I mean, you know, Hans Zimmer is actually a bit of an exception. I don't often meet Americans who use Cubase. It was more kind of like an English thing. Like, I got I got into it because it was being used in the London studios in the early 90s when I was first working there, you know, back as a sort of late teenager or whatever. And uh, that's how I got into it. But it was never a huge presence in the US, I don't think, right? Well, he is German, but... Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. There's like two pop producers I can think of today who use Cubase. Um, mm. But yeah, definitely Ableton is probably, like, I would assume, more used generally right. speaking here. Yeah. Right. But it's funny because when I was in Berlin, like it was a lot, like I didn't see logic on any studios in Berlin. It was all like wow. Pro Tools for recording and then Ableton for mm -hmm. DJs and producers and Cubase. I actually had to go back into Cubase a couple years ago and I hadn't used it for like, 10 years, I don't think. And I could not find my way around it. It had changed like so much over a decade and I found it so clunky and unusable. And But I guess it's what you used to. That's the thing, you know? Yeah. I was on a forum and I saw Hans complaining, I think, about um, opening... Because when he did the new Lion King movie, he he probably had to go back to those old Lion King sessions. <laughs> right. I'm sure some of those plugins don't exist anymore or whatever. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well, cool. The next one I've got here is Piano. Well, um, piano is my instrument. Um, I started playing the piano when I was four years old. Uh, my grandma and my mom kind of argued over, you know, who picked me up playing nursery rhymes by ear on the on the piano. And <laughs> my mom sent me off to lessons. And uh, I studied classical piano for eight years. Uh, growing up in South Africa, we used to have uh, examiners from the Trinity College of Music in London. They would uh, travel out to South Africa once a year to administer the uh, kind of classical piano exams. So uh, I got up to grade seven on that. And then when I was 13, 
um, I kind of started getting bored of classical and I went off to a pop jazz teacher, you know, after that. Um, actually, the piano that I grew up playing is uh, behind me, believe it or not. It's my, my grandma's piano. It was given to her as a, a wedding present by her dad uh, for about 90 years ago and uh, brought it with me to America. I do also now have a Steinway grand piano uh, sitting out uh, in the, the next room of my studio. Uh, weirdly enough, I still like playing the sold upright, uh, I guess because it's got nostalgic value for me. I try and write on piano. I try not to write on keyboards because I feel that if you write on keyboards using uh, electronic instruments, you the sound of those instruments affects you a whole lot, particularly if you're playing things like pads and so on. I think when you compose on a piano before going near the computer, the music has an inner structure, which is uh, deep and uh, is is correct musically, uh, melodies and chords, and that's what music should be about, not about the the sort of oral sound that comes from an electronic instrument. The exceptions to that when you're doing a very atmospheric or uh, ambient sounding score, uh, but for me at the end of the day, it's still about the melody and the chords, and you get that right on a piano. It's more difficult to get them right when you're playing on an electronic instrument, I feel. Definitely, yeah. I mean. I think if a song sounds good with a vocal and piano or, you know, in case of what we do, just like you do a piano sketch and it sounds good on its own, then it's mm. going to be hard to mess it up. Whereas vice versa, it does not always translate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I've got uh, two kids and uh, the, the one's learning trumpet, the one's learning piano. And she um, she initially had this little keyboard, uh, you know, sort of Yamaha thing that someone gave her when she was four. And she would sit and like experiment with all of the sounds constantly and the gadgets. And I kind of made a rule that she has to learn on a piano and it's working really well because she sits there and she's learning chords and scales and the basic building blocks of music rather than the gimmick of sounds. So, yeah, I was definitely that guitar player who, when I felt insufficient uh, growing up from learning, I would buy the guitar pedal before learning how to play the, <laughs> right. the scales. <laughs> right. Well, guitar is another whole thing. I must say, I wish I had learned guitar as a kid because I, I use it a lot in my music and I always wish I could do it myself. And I'm I'm a terrible guitarist because I never learned really. And uh, yeah, well, I wish I'd done that growing up. You're a lucky man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I feel similarly about you with the piano. <laughs> uh, and yeah, last one I have here is favorite Spitfire libraries. <laughs> um, good question. So I think definitely the the Gwendolyn Sim Simcock uh, felt piano. I love that piano, and I just use it on everything, and uh, it it hardly ever goes wrong. I like Albion Four. I like a lot of the sounds in there. I like that one. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's all like mallet based sounds. Um, it's like mallets and vibraphones and all stuff taken from there, uh, which I like a lot. I'm blanking out. I think the, it might be the swarm some. ones, uh, swarm as well, but uh, not that one. Uh, in per the I think it's just called something to do with ricotti mallets. That's what it's ricotti called. Ricotti mallets, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. I tend to actually use for for orchestra uh, for my sampled orchestra parts. I mainly use Spitfire Studio uh, uh, Studio Orchestra. Um, oh, I somehow, the newer one. yeah, it's a newer one, and I just there's something about the sound which I just find a little more um, confined, which I like. Um, I mean, I like that new BBC Symphony Orchestra, but you know, sometimes it feels a little too grand, almost uh, like studio orchestra for me. It harks back 
to some of those earlier composers like John Barry or, um, you know, where they literally did record in a, you know, a smaller studio. There's just something about the sound I, I really, really like. Um, and I tend, yeah, I tend yeah. to use that on everything. I'm trying to think if there are yeah. any others. Um, I'm kind of blanking now. But yeah, I mean, I use the Spitfire stuff to death. It's like pretty much all I use now. I mean, I have a million sample libraries, but I'm just, I just use Spitfire and everything. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, that's what we all do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta have to. <laughs> yep. Oh, well, cool. Uh, so uh, The Princess Switch, Switched Again, comes out on November 19th. Yep, coming right up. And, uh, you know, all I can say is uh, I actually wrote it in the first days of the, the lockdown, uh, you know, like April, May of this year. And it was just so cool coming into my studio and writing music for this, like, upbeat Christmas romantic comedy. The The movie is all feel good. It'll put a smile on your face. It's a great antidote to this terrible year, 2020. Uh, so I'm sure everybody will enjoy it a lot. Uh, yeah, it'll make you feel better. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm excited to check it out too. And uh, Alan, it was such a pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks so much, Matthew. I've so appreciated talking to you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.